0: continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah, and really it's the Ezra-Nehemiah. You've got to keep those two together. They, they originally were just one book, and, and we're looking at uh, Nehemiah 8 today, but you know, just to kind of review a little bit, to kind of get us to where we are, we've seen just some miraculous things that have happened. And again, the Bible doesn't present them as miraculous things in a really explicit way, but if you knew their, what was going on and you knew that they went from being a people in captivity to suddenly having this, their capital city rebuilt, the walls rebuilt, the temples rebuilt, they are able to do the most important things at this point, then you would understand it's a miracle. And it happened fast. It, it, much faster than, than you could even perhaps force you know, slaves to do it. It happened so fast. And these were people that were just willing to give their, you know, their, their time and their energy, even if it meant personal sacrifice and not being able to take care of their own land and their own farms and things like that. And then last week, we, we talked about the importance of, of rest. And let me just, before I move on to today's sermon, just tell you the danger of rest. The danger of rest is, rest is nice. And sometimes when we rest, we never want to start going again. And that's why, you know, it's really important to understand the purpose of rest. We shouldn't just rest when we're exhausted and can't go anymore. But it's really figuring out how to, to bring that kind of rest into our lives on a regular basis it's the genius of the sabbath but it's one that we often just run right by and so there is that importance of taking the break taking the rest but it's always with a purpose it's always to to get ready for what lies ahead well today we we're we're going to look at this next section when when we see the importance of of God's word, Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Like most of you have a scene like this, you know, Christmas, you see a Christmas tree and you see a bunch of presents under the tree. And, you know, it's kind of typical, normal. A lot of people um, might go like, whoa, that's a lot of presents. And some people might go like, that's not enough. But nevertheless, it's a familiar scene we have. But I kind of wonder what you would think of those of you who are parents if you you know, your five-year-old or six-year-old, um, you know, has been looking at the tree, you know, how many, you know, weeks or days ahead where their gifts are there and they've been anticipating it and, you know, it's the typical, hey, this is Christmas and they're thinking about Christmas morning and then it's Christmas morning and you're opening the gifts and when, when your little five- or six-year-old opens the gift, they look at it and they go, Ah, this is great. This is just what I wanted. And then they put it on the side. They open the next gift. And pretty soon, they've opened all the gifts, but they haven't taken any out of the box. And they haven't played with any. Instead, they've just stacked them nicely and then said, you know, thank you. So, so, this is exactly what I wanted. And then they, they took it to their room and, you know, month or so later you go in the room and you still see all their presents still in the boxes still in the packaging now you would probably start worrying about your child at this point and and if you talked to them you said like oh i noticed all your gifts are still in the package was there something wrong with them was it not what you wanted no no they're great they're exactly what i wanted we would maybe start calling our friends, maybe our parents, was I like this when I was a kid? You know, we may try to think like, do I need to call in a counselor? Something's not right about this kid. And of course, we would all think that. But a lot of us, especially those of us who are children of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, if we could, we might be that kid. Because if we had gotten, say, this present on a a Christmas morning, a Boba Fett, like if we would gotten this present and we knew what was going to happen with Boba Fett, we knew that by the time we were in our 30s or 40s, this Boba Fett, which probably cost less than $10, was going to be worth $32,000, we would have kept it in the box. We would have kept all of those toys in a box if we knew what they would be worth. So while we might think, you know, what a weird kid I have, keeping everything in the boxes, later on you'd be like, what a genius kid I had, you know, to think like that. But we know that there's still something wrong with that. When I hear about these things, you know, I like to watch shows like, you know, um, you know, Antique road show or American Pickers, shows like that. And I like to see when they find these things. And I like to read about stories like when they find cars that that just got kind of lost somewhere and they've never been driven and they're, you know, 60, 70 years old. It's like two sides. On one hand, it's like, oh, that's great. They have this, they found this thing that never been used. But on the other hand, it's like, but wait a minute. That's not what the car was for that's not what the toy was for if you have this first edition book that you've never touched you've never read it's like that's not what you know the the book is for the book is to be read the car is to be driven the toys are to be played with not just to have and then to think you know someday the value is going to go up I find a lot of people treat God's word that way. They're like that kid on Christmas morning. They go, oh, it's God's word. It's awesome. You know, and they, they can say all the right things. And they might even think like, you know what? This is, this is God's manual for how we should live. This is his truth, his wisdom, his letter to us. And yet, 20 years from now, their Bible is in pristine condition. They want to live by God's word, but they don't want to know it. They don't want to use it for what it was intended. We weren't just given God's word so that we could honor it and bow to it and say, it's awesome, we are people of the book, we love the Bible, it's God's word. The reason I think through the centuries there has been this constant struggle between you know, having God's word and studying God's word. And some, sometimes, you know, that's been you know, kept away from the people for different reasons. But now we live in a day and age where it is readily available to us. That all of those battles were fought so that you could have God's word. You could open it. You could study it. You could live by it not just the idea of god's word not just valuing it and having it in high esteem because you know that that's what you're supposed to say but actually using it not keeping it in the box that you would want to know it you would want to know it more than just the general story if 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 i were to tell you like one of my favorite like non you know bible books is is the trilogy Lord of the Rings, and, and you're like, wow, that's great, um, you, you know, you, you like Lord of the Rings, and, and, then, and then you said like, um, don't you like the part when, when uh, you know, when Frodo and Sam, and I'm like, who's Frodo, who's Sam, and they're like, no, no, no. And you know, when they're, they're in, you know, they're about to throw the ring in, and at the last second, Smeagol comes and, and grabs the ring and bites, you know, Frodo's finger off. And I would be like, what? And, and then you would say, are you sure this is your favorite book? And I'd be like, yeah, it's my favorite book. You would certainly question whether it really was my favorite book, and you would probably be right in saying, no, it's wrong. By the way, I can tell you more about Lord of the Rings than you probably care to hear, so don't ever open that topic with me unless you have a few hours. But there's so many people they are like that with the Bible. Oh, the Bible is God's word, it's how we should live. But they can't tell you anything about it. Oh, they can tell you the basics now oh, there's something about moses and abraham and then there's jesus and you know jesus he's apparently a really big deal and and then you know there's a cross story and some shepherds you know they can tell you that they can say oh generally we're supposed to believe in jesus and and you know try to live good lives that's what the bible says so i really believe in the bible but if someone were to ask them talk to them Not just about the stories, but the deeper truths of Scripture. They wouldn't know. And the question we have to ask, because this whole thing is about how to be faithful in a new world, but how can you be faithful if you do not know what you're being faithful to? It's easy to say I'm faithful to something that I don't really understand. How can I be faithful if I don't know what I'm being faithful to? And it gets to this idea that that, that Jesus says. He says, my sheep know my voice. See, we need to know his word so that we can know his voice. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically what to do in every situation we might encounter in life. But the voice of Jesus speaks in every situation. Unfortunately, if you don't know his word, Then the voice you may be hearing in these situations is not Jesus' voice, but your own voice. Or it may be the voice of your culture or influential people in your lives, but it's not the voice of the Lord. If we're going to know the voice of the Lord, we need to know his word. And so we come to this, this place in the story the wall's finished. Last week we talked about the city is secure. And so, you know, some of the huge things are done, and and as we said, you know, it, it gave them a chance to catch their breath. And then we come to this chapter, and here it says, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Mahaseah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashparanah, Zachariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the peoples, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Masayai, Kelita, Azariah, Josabeth, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. There's a lot going on here. What this is actually doing in, in the Jewish sense, it's, it's showing, it's giving us the like the, the formula for synagogue worship. And by the way, our worship follows synagogue worship. We worship, generally follow the same pattern. But it's establishing that because this is what, this is what happened here in the city and they're, they're going to continue this practice, you know, different, different versions of it, not exactly the same, but the, but the order of, of, of activities. And we see some interesting things here. The first thing that we see is it says... All the people gathered, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. The wall's complete, the city's been secured, the people gather, and they say, We want to hear the word. In fact, we don't just want to hear it, we need it. And So they're going to read the book of the law this is kind of like you know pastor's fantasy life in the pastor's fantasy life you know there's so many people in the church saying teach us more tell me more let's have another bible study you know you know worship service your sermons they're way too short they need to be 3 times as long yeah you're laughing cuz you know it's pastor's fantasy right But there's a hunger for the Word. Even though they're they're not at the point where they really understand it, they know how important it is. Remember, they're not just being faithful. They're being faithful. They want to be the covenant people. They're being faithful to the covenant. If they're going to be faithful to the covenant, they need to know the law. They need to know the Word. And so they do it. They want to know. They're expecting to hear. And they want to know the entire word of God. They don't just want the, the parts they like. You know, a lot of us like to, you know, we like to kind of cherry pick, you know, from the Bible. And we like to, we like to pick the parts that either we do well or that we just happen to care about today. But we kind of want to avoid the other parts, the parts that, that might make us have to think about some of the things we're doing or might have to make us think about some of the things that some of our brothers and sisters are doing or that our culture is doing and then have to say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do knowing that what my brothers and sisters are doing or what my, my, my society is doing is going against your word? You know, we like to come on, you know, sometimes on Sunday morning and just basically be told, you know, you're, you're all right. You know, and just be encouraged. And there's something about gathering together where we should be encouraged. And maybe we want to be challenged a little bit, but not too much. But they, they want to hear it. Now, it's unlikely, unless he read super fast that he read the entire book of the law. If you want to try this, you can try this at home. Start in Genesis and go through Deuteronomy and try to read it as fast as you can. And if you can do it in less than six hours, great. Of course, he was doing it in Hebrew, so we're not a hundred, it's not going to be exactly the same. But he's reading through it. And we know from their later reaction that it wasn't just the parts they wanted to hear. We also know this isn't a ritual, this isn't a tradition. This isn't something that the leaders are saying, hey, all you guys got to get together and you need to hear this. No. They want to hear it because they want to be faithful to God's word as much as they possibly can, which is going to be limited by how much they understand it. So they want to understand it. They want to hear it. See, that's the other thing, too. As we see here, it's not just the reading of the Word, but it's also understanding the Word, having a right understanding of the Word. One of the things we sometimes leave out in the modern church, you know, when, when, when we say, like, oh, we believe that like, the Bible is God's Word. That it is, it is authoritative, it is inerrant, it's inspired. We can say all of that. We can say it should be the authority for our lives. We can say all that. But we often leave out what the church has always believed about the Bible. That the Bible is truth, but only when it's rightly interpreted. It's not enough just to say I have these words as though these words are magic. It has to be rightly interpreted. What the church has disagreed about over 2,000 years is, how do you rightly interpret the word of God? Who has that ability? Who has that, that, you know, that right? Who's been given that responsibility? It's a big question. The default position oftentimes in the, in the parts of the church I've been a part of is, ultimately it's you. You decide what's the right interpretation or not. Even if you listen to me or somebody else, ultimately you're like, that's right. Or, no, that's wrong. And if somebody asks you, what's the basis for that? Ah, just feels right. Just feels wrong. Or, I think it means this. And that's different from what that person said. well, what's our choices? You know, should we just trust one person? Should we just say that one person is the only person who has the right to interpret God's word? Well, you could do that, but that's often how we end up with cults where we just blindly believe whatever the person is saying. I really think this right understanding comes from a combination of things. I think... Part of it comes from from being a church that emphasizes discipleship, being disciples, because when we 're disciples, when we 're discipleships, what happened, what happens is, is that is that we, we get a foundation, and in in that foundation we are taught the most important truths, and these are not the things that the church has disagreed about. these are the church things that the church has has agreed about for for centuries. But we're also given the tools to continue to study and grow and learn. But that's only one part. Some people think, oh, discipleship's the answer to everything, just do discipleship and then everything will be okay. No, that's one part. It's a huge part, it's a part that's often forgotten. If you remember, my definition of the church is a community of disciples. That's the big part of it. So understand, I believe discipleship is so important, but it's not the end of it. There also is the aspect of the community. And in the community, there's there's two other parts of this. It's not just me learning to study and then figuring out what the right interpretation is. It's us coming together as the community of faith. That's one of the reasons we we give so many opportunities for people to come together and study God's word together. But it's also in the community is the understanding that we're not all at the same place and that there should be people in the church, people that perhaps God has gifted, perhaps God has, has given opportunities to get training, that there are those people too Who should be helping us, leading us, facilitating this understanding, this right understanding of the word of God. And guess what? That's what we see here. We see the people gathered, but then we see all these names. I don't want to read again because um, they're hard to read. Um, We see all these names of people, and what are they doing? It says in verse 7, they're helping the people to understand the law. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. We're not exactly sure what's going on, and by the way, there are thousands of people gathered for this, thousands. We're not exactly sure, you know, how it all went, how it was all set up, but it seems to be that Ezra's reading from this platform, and and he's reading in Hebrew, most of these Jewish exiles can't speak Hebrew anymore. Or if they can, it's not very good Hebrew. And so he's reading in Hebrew, and these these other men, and they're all men that that are listed here, these other men, one of the things they're doing when it says they read from the book from the law of God clearly, is that what that really seems to mean is that they're actually translating it into the language that most of them would have known. And that was Aramaic. And so there's this translation that's taking place, but it's more than translation. It's also helping them understand what it means. As you know, just going from one language to another is is not enough. There's not always a, a... You know, smooth, you know, transition from one language to another. There are things that can be said in one language that really can't be said in the other language. And so it has to be explained in another way. And it appears that there some of them are doing this from the stage that they're on. So while Ezra's reading, they're probably doing it simultaneously. And then there's the sense where it says they all stood in the place where maybe they were going to groups of the of the people and talking to them in, in smaller groups. Again, we don't know exactly how all of this looked. We just know that there was there was an importance placed on a right understanding. And you might think like, wow, that sounds like it would take a long time. Six hours. Six hours you know, we get tired after like an hour or something and it's air conditioned, we got pews. Six hours standing outside. I mean, they didn't have watches, but if they had, you know, know, how much longer? Oh my gosh, he's just through Genesis. I'm already hungry. No, they are hungry, but they're hungry for the word. They also do this thing that, again, makes us very uncomfortable. But they have the right response to the Word of God. If you go down to um, verse verse 5, when it says, He opened the book, so He's up on this stage. It's high enough for for, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people to see Him. And He's up on the stage... And it says he opens the book, and he hasn't even read from the book yet. He's just opened it. And it's not a book. Don't think of a book. Think of a scroll. Okay, They didn't have books back then. But as soon as he's taken the first part of the scroll and opened it, what do the people do? Well, Ezra says he blesses the Lord, and the people answer, Amen, Amen. They do do several things that show you what their response is to the word of God. Get this now. Before they hear it. Keep that in mind. Before they hear it, they say, Amen, Amen. And most of you know what Amen means. Amen means, so be it. Let it be. Whatever is going to be read, it's God's word, even though I don't know exactly what's going to be read, what's exactly going to be said, let it be. So be it. That's the first thing. And it says they lifted up their hands. And this is another sign of of surrender to God. Again, for a lot of us, this, this makes us uncomfortable. You know, one of the big dilemmas, you know, I grew up you know, Southern Baptist Church and you know, my whole life, and one of the big dilemmas was when we started using overhead projectors and now we use these screens because before that, Baptists were safe because we always knew what to do with our hands. You held the hymnal, so you knew what to do. But then, when we didn't need the hymnal, like we're like, what do we do with our hands? We've never, and we could, I guess we could hold a book. You know, I think people have become now comfortable with it that that uh, it's not as big a dilemma. But they're using their hands in worship. It's a way of surrender. It's expressive. We almost pride ourselves on not showing expression. I don't really necessarily pride myself on it. It just comes naturally to me, but my daughters say my resting face is a mad face. And so their joke is they I think they actually like watch every Christmas, every you know birthday, every Father's Day like you know, can we get dad to you know, jump around and be like, oh, this is so great, this is so awesome. Because they all say like, no matter how great it is, my response is usually, wow, thank you, this is nice. And then that's it. But sometimes we we, we pride ourselves on, on not worshiping expressively. I, I joked about this before, but you know, but if, if, if we had a camera that, that shush, you know, shown out here, what the worship team sees, are, you know, what's, what's going on? What is the expression of worship that's happening? If you didn't know who those people were, even if they were you, we could kind of cover their face and you wouldn't know who they were. Would you think like, wow, these people really love their God? What would they think? But we almost pride ourselves on not being expressive. But these guys are like, you know, look, it's the word of God. It's God's word. We want to receive. And then it does the thing that that would be really hard for some of us just to do. But even if we can do it, we don't want to do it. And that is, they, they go down on the ground. Get this picture in your head. Ezra's up here. He's just opened the scroll. Tens of thousands of people have just said, Amen, Amen, raising their hands. And then it says they put their face on the ground. The reason I don't show you this is because I'm afraid I would have to preach from the ground because I might not be able to stand back up in the next 10 minutes. It takes a while for my body to uncreak. But they are on the ground. In fact, if they are fully in, on the ground the way that, that would sometimes be done, they are flat on the ground. Face to the ground. Why? It's, it's the position of total submission to God. They're saying, God, do whatever you want. If you, if you were conquered, if your, if your people were conquered and you were the king, the way you showed your submission to the king who beat you would be to lie flat on the ground because you're totally defenseless. If the king, if the conquering king wants to kill you, he can kill you. If he wants to put his feet on your head, he can put his feet on your head. If he wants to say, stand up, he can say, stand up. We don't like that. It doesn't, doesn't kind of jive with kind of our modern sensibilities. But they have this right response to God's word before they hear it. A lot of us are like, yeah, okay, I'm ready to hear God's word. I'm ready to consider what God might be saying today and then determine how I might apply that to my life. When I pray, I don't just pray for you, I pray for me. When I pray before my sermons, I want us to have the feeling of, God, it's all, it's all open. Whatever today, is there some, some kind of like stronghold in my life that, that I'm, just, I'm just not willing to let go of? God, if today is the day you're going to blow that up, please do. Is there some habit, some sin that I'm holding on to, some attitude that, I, that I've justified and I've Christianized. Can you make my blind eyes see today? It's all open. That's how these people are. Whatever, God, we're completely at your mercy. He Then says this in verse 9, I'm not going to read it all, but I'll... Uh, I just want to read this beginning part where it says, and Nehemiah, who was the governor. So we haven't heard from Nehemiah yet in this, but Nehemiah is now there. And Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Again, in in our attempt to try to be under control of our emotions because that's what we're supposed to do. In our attempt to not be affected outwardly by worship or fellowship or God's Word or anything, we sometimes don't realize we're actually deadening our hearts to receiving God's Word. when you hunger for God's word, when you surrender yourself to whatever God's word would say, it will affect you. Oh, I'm not saying we should be known as the weeping church. But I think if we can go to Worship and hear God's word and go to Bible studies again and again and again, and we and we're not moved in our spirit. That we're not grieved by sometimes our lack of obedience. You gotta ask, why not? Are we that good? Maybe we are. Maybe I'm you know, maybe we are that Christ-like. Maybe our church is that perfect that I haven't yet gotten to the parts we're not doing well yet. Maybe. Maybe you're so much like Jesus that all of this is like, yeah, pastor, that's good. Those other people, they really need to hear it. I got it, though. That's why we need to know the whole word as they're hearing the whole law. They weep. They weep. This is happening at a time that's a very holy time in the in, in in the nation. And it's at the time when when they're they're going through kind of their new year. And they're going to come to this time of the Day of Atonement. And it's so part of what's happening is even though they haven't really observed these things probably regularly for a long time, and some of them probably never. They're going through that, that process of atonement. And they're about at the time of, of, of what's called the, the festival of booths. And so they, it's, it's what's going to become, it's going to be restarted as this annual reminder of the covenant. The annual reminder of, of who they have, have promised to be to God and who God has promised to be to them. But it's also this annual reminder of how much they have fallen, how much they've fallen short. To hear the word, the right response to the word is not just praise, not just worship, not just submission. There's a weeping. And I'm going to tell you, it's not easy. I don't like thinking about that. I don't like those quiet moments when I start thinking about how so many things in my life I've just held on to that keep me from being more Christ-like. The mistakes that I make every day. I don't like thinking about that. But if we're ever going to go and become more and grow in our faith, we have to be willing to confront those areas where we are not measuring up. The deeper you go into the Word, the deeper the Word gets into you. And it starts to reveal to you things that no one else in the world would even think is sin. But you know it is. You know what everyone else looks at as your goodness and your sacrifice. That somewhere deep within that is this still this this need to be needed, this need to be recognized. You know that sometimes you're still caught in the grips of your own desires or or maybe you're just victims. Of, of, of all the things that have kind of shaped you and, and, and you know, made, made your values or your decisions or your non-decisions or, and all of that that, that, that you're still being controlled by that. It makes me weep. I don't like to show people. I don't want people to know that. So I don't know. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you weep. But you don't let anybody see That's better than not weeping at all. But we can't stay with weeping. He then says in verse 10, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In verse 12, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You see what happens here? If you come hungering for God's word, if you come surrendered to allow God's word to do in your life whatever it needs to do, that yes, there will be weeping. But that weeping turns into great joy. That ultimately, it's why we can truly rejoice. Because we're not rejoicing in our ignorance. We're not rejoicing in our smug piety and our feeling of, that we're better than most other people. We're rejoicing that we have heard God's word and that it's penetrated into an area in our lives that for whatever reason, we have, we have not let it penetrate before. And now, we can be more Christ-like than ever. We can be used more mightily than ever. We rejoice. His word ultimately leads to joy. Joy. That's why we go back to this thought. We need to know his word, to know his voice. It always goes back to the word. And I pray that you already have this attitude towards God's word. If not, I pray that you would even begin seeking now and ask, God, why not? Why can these people 2,500 years ago have this feeling for you even though they don't have the Holy Spirit and me claiming to have your spirit? I don't feel that.